Well, some people are excited about change, but for many, if not most, change is a trial. And it's just one of the many trials that we face in this life. And they come in all forms. There are those here dealing with financial challenges. There are those dealing with health emergencies and crises. There are those in relational conflicts. There are those struggling at work or at school or in their neighborhood or in their home. Trials are a part of living as fallen people on a fallen planet. As Job said, man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. It's just in the nature of things that we have a troublesome lot in this life. And as Job also demonstrates with his life, God's people are not exempt. We don't come to God and get a fast pass through the traffic jams and the crises of life. We don't get to place out of the trials of the troubles of life. There is no advanced placement that we get to skip that part of the curriculum. Trials are a core component of God's plan for his people because they are a way in which he deepens our faith, sanctifies our character, demonstrates our witness to the world, and then helps embrace them in as well. But if we don't approach these trials rightly, it's also possible that they can shake our faith, that they can lead us into temptation and sin, that they can compromise our witness, and that they can hurt our loving unity that we are intended to have as a family. And so in the midst of this reality of life that is part of God's plan for us, we are going to begin a book study on the book of James, which we begin today in James chapter 1, where we'll look at the first eight verses. So please open your Bibles to the book of James chapter 1, which is going to tell us how to walk in faith and faithfulness in the midst of trials that God places in our path. So our Bible is broken up into two parts, an Old Testament based on the Old Covenant of Moses and a New Testament, which is the New Covenant that Jesus established. The New Testament has three main sections, the Gospels and Acts, which gives us the history of the coming death and resurrection of our Lord and the birth and expansion of His church. Then we have a section of letters, the Pauline letters and the general epistles written to general churches rather than specific congregations. And finally, the book of Revelation. James is the first of the general epistles following the book of Hebrews. But before we get acquainted with the book, we want to get to know James as a person, James as the author, to better appreciate the book of his that we are about to read. Now, James was a popular name in first century Israel because it's the English form of the Hebrew Jacob, who is the patriarch of Israel. So you remember that Jacob and Esau, Jacob had 12 children that became the 12 tribes of Israel. God named them Israel because God renamed Jacob Israel after he struggled with God, wrestling with the angel of the Lord. There are four, maybe five Jameses in the New Testament, depending on how we identify James the less, and most of them are mentioned in Acts chapter 1. In verse 13, after Jesus ascended, it says, When they had entered the city of Jerusalem, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John, and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. Now, all we know about James the father of Judas is that Judas was his son. It's just an identifier. The two things we know about James, the son of Alphaeus, is that he was Alphaeus' son 
and that he was one of Jesus' apostles. James, the brother of John, we know quite a bit about because he was the fisherman in Capernaum that Jesus came at the beginning of his public ministry and called to follow him and he would make them fishers of men. And he became one of the inner three apostles who was with Jesus when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He was there when he saw Christ transfigured and he would be the natural default person that we would assume to be the author of a book of our New Testament except that he was martyred too early. And we see in Acts chapter 12 that he was put to death by the sword by Herod before we know that the book of James was written. So who was this last remaining James that could be the author of this book? It was James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was also there with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the other brothers worshiping the ascended Christ. We see in Mark 6, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James? and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, whom the Holy Spirit enabled to conceive before she had relations with Joseph. But then she and Joseph went on to have natural marital relations, and that produced at least four brothers, half-brothers, and at least two half-sisters, because sisters is plural. And we know initially that Jesus' half-brothers did not acknowledge him to be the Messiah and did not immediately embrace him to be the Son of God. In John chapter 7, it said that the Feast of Booths was near, and therefore Jesus' brother said to him, Leave here, go into Judea, so that your disciples may see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he wants to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. They said, Jesus, if you're trying to make a name for yourself, then go publicly to Jerusalem for this festival. But they didn't mean it because they were not believing in him. In Mark 3, it's even starker. He reports a time when Jesus was teaching in Capernaum, and then it was said his own people, his own family, went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. We need to go and grab this guy and bring him back home to keep him safe because He's mad. So this is a half-brother of Jesus that grew up in the same home with him, with Mary, with Joseph, with the others. And you have to appreciate the fact that being Jesus' little brother would have been fairly maddening. Because your whole life was a recurring refrain of, why can't you be more like Jesus? <laughs> he was perfect in school, perfect at the table, perfect in every way. And this was James, and he rejected him all the way up until the cross, so far as we know. So what led this skeptic, this half-brother, who into his 30s did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah? He was blessed with seeing the risen Christ after Jesus' resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, he was raised, he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve, then to five hundred brethren at one time, then he appeared to James. Jesus appeared to his half-brother James, which led his brother to embrace him as Savior. And then he became part of that group, meeting in the upper room after the ascension of Christ, praying for the coming of the Holy Spirit. James was there when the Holy Spirit first came at Pentecost. He was one of the ones that would have heard the rushing wind and, the, and seeing the flame like a tongue of fire resting upon him. James was in that group. And then James 
became the head elder, the leader of the church of Jerusalem. That in Acts chapter 8, a persecution arose following the stoning of Stephen. This is when Saul began to persecute the church. And it says that the leaders were scattered. The remnant remained, including James. And James becomes the principal figure of the mother church of Christendom. He would have been the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. When the angel freed Peter from Herod's jail after his arrest, he told the prayer meeting, go and report it to James and to the brethren. When Paul went to Jerusalem after his three years in Arabia, he then went and saw Peter and James, whom he refers to as the Lord's brother. When Paul and Barnabas went to have their gospel to the Gentiles endorsed by the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, it says, recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, Cephas being Peter's Arabic name, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Not Peter, John, and James. No, no, James, Cephas, Peter, and John. He's now the preeminent figure who represents the church at Jerusalem. In Acts 15, when there was a controversy, Gentiles are coming to the faith, and some said they ought to be circumcised, they ought to obey the dietary laws of Moses. How are we as Jewish believers going to embrace the Gentiles? They should conform to the Old Testament law. They brought it to the council, they brought it to the leaders, and it was James who responded and said, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon, that is Peter, has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles with being circumcised or obeying the law of Moses, except that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what has been strangled with blood. Years later, when Paul came back to Jerusalem on his third missionary journey, the following day, he went to James and all the elders. Decade, 15 years later, the only elder mentioned in Jerusalem is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Jude, another half-brother of Jesus, the author of the book of Jude, when he introduces himself, he says, Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Not half-brother of Jesus, brother of James, because he was that noted of a figure in the first century church. He's even mentioned by the Jewish historian Josephus, who writes, Festus was dead, and Albinus was upon the road, so he assembled the Sanhedrin of Judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, called the Christ, whose name was James. And he delivered them to be stoned. This was an actual historical person who was martyred for his faith. The church historian Eusebius records these uh, accounts of James the pastor or the, the head elder of the church of Jerusalem. James, the brother of the Lord, succeeded to a government of the church in conjunction with the apostles. He has been called the just by all from that time of our Savior to the present day. There were many that bore the name James, so he was called James the just, James the righteous, famous for his holiness. He was in the habit of entering into the temple and was so frequently found upon his knees begging forgiveness for the people that his knees became hard like those of a camel in consequence of his constantly bending them in his worship of God and asking forgiveness for the people. So his nickname was twofold, James the Just because he was such a righteous and a holy man in camel knees. 
because his knees were callous and coarsened from so often bending down in prayer, praying for forgiveness and for God's intervention to bring the gospel to the Jews. So who is this person that we're about to study his letter? He was a half-brother of Jesus who grew up with our Lord, who knew Joseph and who knew Mary and was there from even before the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He started out as a skeptic but converted when he saw Jesus resurrected, most likely in his 30s or possibly into his late 20s. He was among those in Jerusalem at the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell. He was one of the original recipients of the Holy Spirit who indwelt him. He was one of those speaking in tongues that he did not know that was then a manifestation of God's coming of giving the gospel that would undo Babel. He knew all the original apostles plus Paul. He knew Paul. He knew Barnabas. He knew Timothy. He knew Titus. He knew all of these people because he was the head of the church in Jerusalem, the mother church of Christendom for more than a decade. He was renowned for his holiness. He was famous for his prayer life. He died a martyr's death, and he wrote what is very likely the first book of our New Testament. Some think it was Galatians. Most think it was James. This is the first book of our New Testament. So, ready to listen to James? He introduces himself. James a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bondservant actually should be translated slave. He introduced himself not as the half-brother of Jesus, not as the leader of the church in Jerusalem, but rather as a slave of God, one who belongs to God and serves him. Like other famous servants of God, Moses, David, Jeremiah. But then he adds, what would to the Jews have been a blasphemous claim, that he is also a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. So a Jew would have expected Lord to be attached to God, not to Jesus. Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, and one is not a slave or a servant of a dead man lying in a grave. This is an implicit affirmation of his resurrection, of his life, of his lordship. And so he said, how do I view myself? I'm a slave of God and a servant of God, and I am equally a slave of Jesus Christ and a servant of Christ. That's my identity. And he writes to the 12 tribes who were dispersed abroad. Now, to a Jew, the 12 tribes referred to the 12 tribes of Israel. And the first word in the Greek of this book is Jacob, Jacob, because that's the Hebrew origination of our name James. So you have Jacob, the father of Israel, writing to the 12 tribes, but we know he's writing to believers. So he is writing to the Jewish believers who together represent comprehensively the people of God. This is in those early days of the church, likely even before Paul's first missionary journey, when the majority of the church would have been Jews. And so he writes to them as the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, literally who are of the diaspora. When God gave the law to Israel, he said through Moses that if you disobey me, then I will judge you with famine and with plague and with the sword. And if you still refuse to repent, then I will disperse you among the nations. And this happened. First to the northern ten tribes that were taken into Assyria, then with the southern two tribes that were taken into Babylon. And even after the return, not all of them returned. So to a Jew, the word dispersion meant those people of God who lived outside of the Holy Land, outside of the Promised Land. And some think that he is now writing to Jewish Christians 
spread around, spread around the Roman Empire, likely along the shores of the Mediterranean. But it's very likely that there's a more specific group that he's writing to. In Acts chapter 8, it tells us, On that day when Stephen was stoned to death and became the first martyr, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered, a verbal variation of the word diaspora, throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Then in Acts 11 it says, So those who were scattered, the only other occurrence of this in the book of Acts or later in the New Testament, because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. There is a thriving church in Jerusalem ever since the Holy Spirit birthed the church at Pentecost. And it grew from 120 to 3120, and then it grew and it grew, and then persecution arose, and the people were scattered. And what did they do? They went and formed another church. And likely, the people that James is writing to are those Jewish believers who came from Jerusalem and now are in Phoenicia and in Antioch. In other words, those who likely knew James as their former pastor. He likely knows some of these people. And now he's writing to them. And he says, Consider it all joy. Now, if we were just to complete that sentence, imagine that you are in the church, maybe in Antioch, and you hear a letter coming from James, and the opening words are, Consider it all joy. Where would your mind begin to fill in the blank? That James is coming for a visit? That the persecution has died down and we get to go back home to Jerusalem? That Jesus is coming back soon? We could imagine a number of things that we would fill in the blank with, consider it all joy, consider it pure joy. What probably none of us would have filled in the blank is what James goes on to specify. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. We don't word associate trial with joy. If we did the word association game and I said trial, you might say things like trouble, dread, grief, pain, suffering. Maybe a name comes to mind. Maybe a face comes to mind. Maybe a situation comes to mind. But trials and joys are not something that we equate. But James tells us that we should. He commands us that we do. In fact, this first word after the salutation is a command which is appropriate because there are more commands in James proportionally than any other book of the Bible. This is a doing book about how we live as followers of Christ in the context of difficult circumstances. And verse 2 tells us seven truths about trials that we'll unpack starting at the end of the verse and moving to the beginning. First of all, that trials are trying. By their very nature and definition, these are things that are troublesome. Here's how Merriam-Webster defines a trial. It is a test of faith, patience, or stamina through subjection to suffering or temptation, a source of vexation or annoyance. Trials, by definition, are unpleasant. There's something that we don't enjoy in and of themselves. Secondly, trials are various. They come in various forms. Now, it's likely that the trials he's writing to them on at least involved 
persecution from the Jews because they had embraced Jesus as the Messiah. It's also likely that there was a famine going on in, that, in Palestine, in Israel, at this time, that they likely were suffering economic want. We'll get into that as we get further into the book. But the reality is, trials come in a wide array of forms and approaches. There are financial, there are medical, there are relational, there are educational, there are occupational, there are political. Trials are various. They are internal, external, intense, gradual, recurring once for all. We encounter trials. We don't seek them out and we usually don't see them coming. <laughs> they just are there like the pothole that you didn't notice and then your car gets jarred. They just pop up and they emerge. We befall them. You reminds us that trials are universal. Christians aren't exempt. We don't get a pass from the trials of life. If anything, God intentionally puts trials on our path for the purposes that he intends for them. Notice when, not if, trials will occur. They are unavoidable. They are inescapable. It's not like school that we get done with and then we move past it. I'm glad to get out of that season of life. It's just the trials change. Trials are best endured, encountered, as a Christian family. Notice he says, my brethren. He doesn't speak to them as a leader of the church. He doesn't speak to them as someone who knew the apostles. He speaks to them as brothers, sisters. I've heard that you're going through trials, and my heart reaches out to you, and I just had to write. That we're intended to go through trials together. We're intended to encourage and to help one another in the midst of them. And seventhly, we are to consider trials all joy. That we're not to grumble and complain. We are not to lament and despair. We are not to blame God and shake our fist at Him. We are to consider them joy. We're not just simply like Stoics to suck it up, gut it out, grin and bear it. G.K. Chesterton said, the problem with the advice grin and bearing it is if you're bearing it, you're not grinning. You might be grimacing, but you're not grinning. But he says we are to consider it all joy, which isn't our natural response, which is why it's a command, and which is why he goes on to explain why. Knowing that, because you know that, the testing of your faith produces endurance. We don't enjoy the trials themselves, but we consider it all joy because of what the trials produce, which namely is endurance, which is steadfastness, which is that fortitude of faith that allows us to withstand any opposition that comes our way. That's that inner strength that allows us to keep advancing no matter the obstacle. God wants his people to have endurance, and the way that we find endurance is through the testing of our faith that trials produce, and we can enjoy this. And y'all can all relate. Now, there are some of y'all who pay good money every month to go to a gym that has more instruments of torture or of affliction than you have at home so that you can buffet your body. And it's not that you enjoy the soreness of the muscles itself, but you enjoy the produce of that gym. There are those of you that go out to running clubs in order to have faster runners push you faster and further that leaves you panting and gasping, prostrate on the ground, which isn't enjoyable, but it is enjoyable that you're able to long, run longer next time. 
to run further faster next time. There are cyclists who go join Pelotons or go to Peloton cycling clubs so that someone in better shape than you can push you beyond your endurance to increase your endurance. And the good thing isn't the pain, it's what the pain produced. I know there's people here who enjoy crossword puzzles. And the Monday course crossword puzzle is okay, but if you're a crossworder, you know that they get progressively harder leading up to the most challenging day of the week of all, which is Sunday, because you have more time to work them. And that's enjoyable because you're increasing your vocabulary. I know we have puzzlers here who aren't satisfied with 250, 500,000-piece puzzles. Now they get smaller pieces with more obscure edges, with fewer colors. You know, you'll get a snowstorm and a fly, and they'll put those together because it increases their puzzling ability. And we know what it is. I enjoyed that workout, not in and of itself, but because of what it produced. And trials produce stamina, endurance, steadfastness, which is something that we all need. Uh, if I were to just begin to hum the bars, bum, bum, ba-ba-bum, ba-ba-bum, ba-ba-bum. Yeah, can't you hear Rocky? and gonna fly now, getting strong now, and the trump comes out and then comes those big two trombone tones. Is it a trombone or a tuba? Those big bass notes. And now the Italian stallion is going to grimace and pain his way into fighting shape. And it's inspiring because that's something we aspire to. And that's what God does for us in trials. Trials are God's gym to produce in us endurance. The Apostle Paul says the same thing. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. But not only this, we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance brings about proven character, and proven character brings about that hope. It confirms that we belong to Jesus and that it reassures us of our hope of heaven someday. Trials are good because of what they produce in us, but there is a caveat. We must endure in them so that they complete their perfect work of perfecting us. Uh, last week we acknowledged our graduates and it's a wonderful achievement to graduate high school, to graduate college, to graduate boot camp, which someone will do soon. But as wonderful as that training was, a graduate of boot camp is incomplete until they see battle. As bright as that business student was, you don't really know their capacity until they get a job. As beautiful as that couple is, as wonderful as that premarital counseling was, you don't really begin to grow as a husband or as a wife until you enter into that wonderful, blessed trial of marriage. And the wedding becomes a marriage and you have to learn to be more selfless and to sacrifice for the other and now you become sanctified. Now you become more like Jesus. And now you become one of those great saints that we all admire. And the only way to get there is through the trials that produce the endurance, that do their perfect work in perfecting us and completing us and making us more like Jesus. And now we become useful to God, better able to represent and to serve Him no matter what the circumstances. So Francis of Assisi, uh, the great saint, who, at least in general polls, is the most respected Christian of all time other than Jesus. There's something about Francis that everybody loves. 
They love his poverty. They love the way he reached out to lepers. They love his love of birds and animals. Even the environmentalists love Francis. But Francis began as the son of a wealthy cloth merchant who aspired to be a knight. He was captured in battle in a fight with a neighboring town of Perugia, famous for his hot chocolate. If any of you go to Italy, make sure you go to Perugia. It's the best hot chocolate on the planet. And then he had a converting experience that led him into following after Christ, that led him to a renouncing of his wealth, and he gave away all his possessions, and he trusted God for his daily bread, and then he was willing to go and work among the lepers and to those that no one else wanted to be around. And through all this, God took the soft son of a cloth merchant who was used to being dressed in silk and turned him into someone who then went to the Muslim-controlled uh, area of North Africa crossed a battle line between Christians and Muslims, went into the opposing tent of the sheik, challenged their imams to a test of faith and said, here's the fire, I'll jump in, they'll jump in, and the one that comes out alive worships the true God. They declined, he didn't have to, but he was willing to because he had become a knight of Christ. Later in life, as his eyes began to cloud with cataracts, there was, at that time, not a proven procedure, but sometimes people could find benefit by cauterizing the cataract in your eye, which involved, in the 1400s, 1300s, 14th century, taking a piece of hot steel, glowing it hot red in the fire, holding your eye open. Sorry. <laughs> I see some people cringing and grimacing. I'll go no further. <laughs> but Francis, at a time that he simply could have retired and had all the people come and honor him, and he could have spoken wisdom, willingly endured the cauterization of both eyes so that he could prolong his sight to extend his ministry. And according to some of the eyewitnesses of this medical event, as it came close, he said, Brother Fire, God has made you fierce. I pray that you be gentle with me. And he allowed it to be cauterized. Um, I knew a great saint by the name of Joy Brown, speaking of eyes. Uh, Joy was just one of these beautiful saints. She was in her 90s at Good Sam, and I was summoned to see her one day. And her vision had gotten so bad, she had this special monitor that could glow up, blow up her Bible to about 500 font. You'd get about one word at a time on this screen. She'd lean in because she still had to see God's word. And I had pink eye at the time. So the door opens and she throws out her arm and I said, Miss Brown, I have pink eye and I don't want to get you sick. And she pulled me into her embrace and said, oh, Sonny, I'm tough. I live on Tough Street, into the street, last house. <laughs> and Joy Brown was. But she had lost a husband. She had gone through hard times in her life and she was one of the great saints in Denton. And we have saints among us here who have endured hard things, who have lost spouses, who have lost children, who have had medical events, who have had financial events, and they are among the giants in the land because the trials produce the endurance that makes us useful to God and now better able to serve Him in whatever context He puts us in. Uh, my brother was part of a discipleship group once called Battle Ready. And the symbol of the ministry, an intensive discipleship program, is a sword. But it's not just any sword, because many people sell the cheap, showy swords. And they look great on a mantle, but if the Huns were ever at your door and you had to pull it, it would break off readily at the first strike, because it's all for show. But then there are those implements 
that have been pounded on an anvil, that have gone through the furnace, and now they are hardened, and now they are battle ready. And that's the symbol of the ministry, is to produce disciples who haven't just memorized a few scriptures and been to some Bible studies, but who are battle ready, who are ready to go out into whatever context God sends them and to stand strong as soldiers of Christ. And that's what we're called to do. Uh, John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress says, Some have wished that the way to their father's house was here, and they might be troubled no more with hills or mountains to go over. So every pilgrim on our pilgrimage comes to a point of, there's got to be a shortcut around that mountain. <laughs> there's got to be another way than through that bog, through that swamp, through those nettles, facing that lion. But then he says, but the way is the way. And then there's an end. There is no other way. There is no soft road. There is no easy path. We are fallen people in a fallen planet exposed to other fallen people and to fallen angels. There's going to be trials. The way is the way. But there will be an end. And in the meanwhile, when we doubt, he tells us what to do in verses 5 through 8. But if any of you lacks wisdom, God's divine discernment on how to handle trials, how to respond to them, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. When we lack the ability to see things from God's perspective, which all of us do, because that's not our initial response to trials, and the longer the trials go and the harder they get, the less likely we are to keep considering them all joy. You know, this was okay for a season, but God, this is getting a little bit long. He tells us to pray and that God will provide us the perspective that we need in order to keep facing the trials with joy. So I was talking to a sister this week, and she made the comment, uh, when I was interning in a cloth shop, I was Miyagi'd. And y'all probably know all what that means, don't you? So in her instance, she worked for a fabric store that had countless types of fabrics, both colors and textures, and her job was to go in and tag every single one of those. And it was a beating of a job because there were more patterns and more textures and more colors than she could ever get in her mind. But through that process, later when she had to run the counter herself and someone said, I need this cloth in this color, she knew exactly where to go because she had waxed on and waxed off. She had been Miyagi'd. And y'all remember the karate kit. Some of you are old enough, you remember the original one. And there was the wax on, there was the whack off, there was the side to side, there was the paint fence, there was the wash car. And through all this, right when he's ready to quit, he gives him the insight. I was building into your muscle memory the basic blocks against blows, the basic defenses against kicks. And once he gets that insight, it's like, oh. And now he's ready to continue on, to move into deeper levels of training and deeper levels of proficiency. Uh, those of you who saw the Jackie Chan version, it was jacket off, pick up jacket, hang up jacket. Kid's about to quit. And then he gives him the insight. What I was doing was building into your muscle memory the basic blocks against punches and blows and basic counter-strike, and now he's willing to go on with the training despite the trials because it led to further mastery that led to where he wanted to go. God will show us and give us insight, and he encourages us in many ways to do that. First of all, notice that he says, if any of you, not just the super saints, not just the mature, not just the Jews, but the Samaritans and the Gentiles. Not just the men, but the women. Not just those who faltered after a long endurance, but those who falter immediately. 
Not those who seem to have learned their lesson once and now don't have to ask as often, but however many times you need to ask. Anyone is invited to come to God. And notice how God is described. To God who gives to all generously. Any may come and God gives to all. That it's not like going to the goblins at, what's the name of the bank in Harry Potter? Gringotts. It's not like going to the goblins at Gringotts who with a scowl don't want to give you your gold. It's not going to Ebenezer Scrooge because your hands are too cold to scribe the numbers anymore and he begrudgingly gives you out a piece of coal to put in the fire. God is generous. God bestows lavishly to any and to all. So go to him. And notice that God gives without reproach. You're not going to be rebuked. You're not going to get the frowning face. You're not going to be scolded. You're not going to have to run extra laps. It's not going to be, okay then, if you're going to complain, we'll just extend it a few more months. God doesn't reproach us when we come to him in our need because God knows that we need and he provides all that we need. So any of you come to a God who gives to all generously and without reproach and what will he do? It will be given to him. God doesn't give us everything that we ask for because God loves us too much to do that. <laughs> Just like parents love their children too much to give them everything they ask for. Some things would be harmful, other things they're not ready for yet. But God gives us biblical perspectives on trials and troubles when we come to Him. Because He was the one who put those trials and troubles in our life in the first place. That may come from a time in the Word. That may come from time with the saints. That may come with a brother and sister who's able to come alongside and to say, I lost my husband too. I can help you with that. I lost my child. I can help you with that. Someone lost his daddy this week. And there are those of you who can help him with that. And we help one another. This is how God, this was the truth of God that I clung to. This was the promise of God that gave me stability. This is... And we help one another. And that God answers that prayers. But there's a caveat again. We must ask in faith without any doubting. Because the one who doubts is like someone tossed about on the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. And that kind of person, not that has any doubts and trials, not that wonders and questions why God would allow this hard thing in their life or that it went on so long or was so intense, but the one that is double-minded. That one, I'm coming to God, but really, I really want to listen to the words, world's wisdom as well. Or I know I need to trust God, but only if he does things on my terms and in my timing. Uh, the Old Testament counterpart to this is Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in how many of our ways all your ways acknowledge him and he will do what make our path straight because the reality is we often come to god with god i demand answers god doesn't always give answers job asked lots of questions how many answers did he get none to the ones he asked god didn't tell him why god told him who and that's what he really needed to know Trust in the character of your God who is sovereign over these trials. We're not to be double-minded. We are to come to God, trust in God, 
and I can tell you from personal experience that this is true. When I became a believer in college in the summer of 1989, that following fall, I entered unexpectedly into one of the deepest crises in my Christian life. And I wasn't mature enough to endure it, but by God's grace, He enabled me to pray this prayer. God, let this go as deep and as dark and as long as it needs to, but grant me the grace to stay on the path and teach me what you're trying to teach me. Let me learn my lesson. And, and that's it. This trial is in my life to produce something in me, to develop something in me, to make me more like Christ in this way, to round me out, to give me a tool for ministry that I'll be able to comfort others with. And so it's not God get me out of here. That's okay to pray, but sometimes God puts you in there to teach us something to develop us into the type of men and women that he can use in greater ways to better represent him and to serve him. So I worked in the missions office uh, for a number of years of a large church. And one of the books that we made all of our missionaries read was called These Strange Ashes. And it's one of the early books of Elizabeth Elliot. And Elizabeth Elliot, before she married Jim, they knew each other, they were dating. I think they may even have been engaged in 1952, went to Ecuador to translate the New Testament into the language of the Colorado Indians. And the environment was challenging. This was a very daunting task in and of itself, like all Bible translation is. But they finally found someone who spoke both Coloradan and Spanish. And they, having learned Spanish, could go from English to Spanish to Coloradan. But he was the only one that they were able. And as they were getting further into the project, he was killed in a bar fight. And they lost the only Colorado Indian that knew Spanish to their knowledge. They pushed on, they persevered, they endured. They translated, put into the Colorado Indian language, indigenous language, the New Testament, and they put their manuscript in a saddlebag that they put on a donkey to go to Quito where it could be published, reproduced, sent out. And the donkey slipped, fell off a mountain, and died and brought with him a year's worth of labor, and the only manuscript that existed, because there were no cloud backups back then. Shortly thereafter, she gets a letter from Jim, who's been in a different part of the Amazon, cutting out a village for another indigenous group out of the forest. So clear some land, cut down a tree, plane it, carve it, niche it, build it, while the mosquitoes and everything else are assailing you and assaulting you. And finally, he and his team, after a year's labor, completed a village that they were going to bring people in to teach the kids, teach the Bible, lead people to Jesus. And then a flood came and wiped away the village. And a year's worth of labor washed away. And so she said, God, why? <laughs> why these strange ashes? I brought you this sacrifice of a translation. Why'd you burn it up? Why'd you drop it off a mudslide? I brought you the sacrifice of a village. Why'd you burn it up? Why'd you let a flood wash it away? And the answer was, God was developing not a translator, or a translation, but a translator. Uh, not just a work, but a missionary who could do a lifetime of work. He was preparing Jim Elliott to be the kind of man who could go to the Alka Indians and to give his life for that. And if you know the story, when Elizabeth Elliot, his uh, widow, and her young children, how did they grieve? How did they respond? Did they go back home because God clearly didn't want them in the mission field? You know what she did? She moved with her young children into the village of the tribe that killed her husband and led them to the Lord. 
And through that year of trial, God taught Elizabeth Elliot endurance, and through her example and the example of her husband Jim, inspired generations of missionaries. God did a great work in them, and he could do the same in us. There are those of you here, probably all of us here, are undergoing one trial or another. It's the nature of life. You didn't seek them out. You didn't have to sign up for that particular lesson. God just let it befall you because he is going to use it to make you more like Jesus, to teach you endurance, to complete your ministry training so that he can use you more greatly to glorify him more mightily. Consider it all joy. Not the trial, but what it produces, the endurance. And don't get off the anvil too quick. Don't jump out of the fire too fast. Let that trial produce that endurance, produce its perfect work, which is the perfecting of you, the completing of you, the maturing of you, because we are all to be complete in Christ. And when you doubt, when you wonder, when you struggle to have God's perspective on things, go to him, any of you, all of you, because he gives to all generously and without reproach, and he'll answer that prayer. But don't be double-minded. Don't try to have it your way that you went to God, but really... The only response that God could give that would be acceptable to you is to end the trial, <laughs> to repair the damage, to heal the disease, to restore the finances. We don't come to God on our terms. We come to him just because he's our God and he will provide the grace we need. He will provide the grace that restores. He will teach us what we need to learn and then we'll come on and better serve him on the other side. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you love us so much that having led us to give our lives to Christ as our Savior, you progressively conform us to his image. And unfortunately, from our perspective, this involves trials. And so we thank you that you love us enough to allow us to endure those things so that we can learn endurance. Um, I knew a person once who saw a butterfly struggling to come out of a cocoon. And in an act of attempted mercy, bent down and broke open the cocoon so that the butterfly could emerge more easily. But in doing so, the butterfly never developed the strength of wings that allowed it to fly, and it died. And there are things that we need resistance in order to produce. So would we consider our tries all joy? Would we help each other as brothers and sisters endure them, that they may produce endurance in us and make us more like Jesus, better able to represent and serve him? wherever he sends us. And we ask this in his name. Amen.